0: Today, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23, we're going to talk about the church today. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. If you'd like to stand while we read the Word of God, you are welcome to. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples that no, to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Father, we submit ourselves to you this morning. Jesus, you are the cornerstone. You are the foundation of of the church. You are the foundation of all that is. Father, we pray that you would do the very thing that you did in Peter's heart to us this morning. That you would reveal to us the glory of Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray, Father, that you would help us to submit ourselves to your plan and your will. God, that we would be like Jesus, that we would follow you. God, I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Man, there's a lot of important questions that you are going to have to answer in life, aren't there? Uh, Some really biggies, okay? Think about the big questions of life. Uh, Who are you going to marry? Are you going to be married? You know, who are you going to marry? If you are married, are you going to have kids? If you're going to have kids, how many kids are you going to have? Uh, what are you going to spend your life doing? Like, like you got this one life that God has given you, and so what? What are you going to spend it doing? What's your, what's your occupation going to be? What are your habits going to be? What are your What are you going to spend your time doing? Your hours, your minutes. What, what, what are you going to do with those? Those are big questions. Where are you going to live? Where, where Where are you going to spend your life? You know what? What are you going to invest in? What are you going to invest your money in? You know what? What are the big questions of life? OU or OSU? You know what? What are you going to go with? What? Big questions, right? All of those, some of them are big, but all of those pale in comparison to the only question that ultimately will matter for this life and for billions of years to come, and it's the question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? That's the one you got to answer. That's the one that the, the, the answer to that question will determine your life and your eternity. So Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do do people say that I am? In verse 13, well, they, they, they gave him several options, right? Now, you can divide really the options of who do people say Jesus is into three broad categories, okay? The first category is some people say he's a nobody. If you've been following us in the Gospel of Matthew, you know there were religious leaders that said that Jesus was crazy, that he was delusional, that he'd lost his mind, you know? Because you know how crazy people write things like the Sermon on the Mount, right? And they they write moral teachings that change millennia of, you know, human kind. But anyway, right, it doesn't make sense. But there were people that said he was crazy. There were people that even said he was demonic. Remember the the guys that said he does the miracles by Beelzebub, the prince of demons? You know, because we all know how demons are all about delivering people from the captives of demons. And uh, that doesn't make sense either. But anyway, there were people that said that, right? So there's one category that says Jesus is nobody significant. Now, the second category of people, I would lump the majority of Americans in, and that is people who say Jesus is somebody important, okay? Jesus is somebody important. So you notice in verse 14, they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some people say that you're Elijah. In in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it said that that Elijah would come before the Messiah would come. And so some people were saying, "This, this is Elijah. Others were saying, it's Jeremiah, or others were saying it's, it's one of the prophets. And so all those things are good things, right? They're, they're, they're saying, man, Jesus, you're, you're a really important guy. You're like John the Baptist. You're like Elijah. You're like Jeremiah. You're like one of the prophets. That's actually wrong. That's wrong. If, that, if that's what you're saying about Jesus, he's a really important guy, And you are dead wrong on that. Peter has the right answer. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. That is the only right answer, okay? Now that answer is packed, full of meaning. Okay, so I was talking to our fifth and sixth grade boys uh, uh, this last Wednesday uh, for doing our Christmas lesson and uh, we were talking about how Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Like, my name is Jason Dirks, okay? Well, it's not Jesus Christ. It is Jesus the Christ, okay? The word Christ is a title, okay? It it, it is a title that means the Messiah, the anointed one. All right? so if you take all of your Old Testament, here we got the God story right here. If you take all of your Old Testament, Jesus is the one who fulfills everything in the Old Testament. You got all these promises made to Abraham, in you all the families of going to be blessed. You got all these promises made to Israel. You got all these prophets talking about a time when there'll be a ruler, a king who will deliver all humanity, who will set up a kingdom where the lion will lay down with the lamb, and they'll they'll pound their swords into plowshares, and there'll be this millennial king. Okay, that is the Christ. All right, and so when Peter. Said- Says, you're the Christ. He's saying, you're the one. You're the one that's going to make all our dreams come true. You're the one that's going to tie in all of our hopes, all of our aspirations, all of our pleasures. You're the one that's going to fulfill all of God's promises. You are the one. You are the Christ. And then he says, the son of the living God. In other words, the one who is God's son, the one who is divine. So Peter Peter has it right. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one the whole Old Testament has been prophesying about. And you are the son of the living God. Now, guess what, God, what, what Jesus says to him next? He says, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. All right? You see what he says there? He, he says, you're right. I am the Christ. And you know how you got that? You got that from God. Now it's kind of an amazing thing that Peter couldn't figure that out on himself, right? Because Peter had been with Jesus. He'd been watching him raise dead people. He'd been watching him heal the leper. He'd been watching him, you know, make the paralytic to walk and the the blind to see. And he'd been walking on water and feeding 20,000 people with a a little boy's lunch. And yet Peter needed the help of God. He needed the help of the Holy Spirit to open his eyes to see Jesus is the one. He is the one. Just like we need his help today. 1 Corinthians 2 14 says the natural man does not does not understand he's not appraised the things of God Second Corinthians 4 4 says that, that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of, of God right and so we we need God to come in and to reveal Jesus to us in Matthew chapter 11 you might remember this from a month or two ago Jesus said in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. right? So we need this revelation of God. So God reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the next thing that Jesus says is he's like, yes, Peter, you know. God has revealed that to you, and then he says, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, we're going to slow down here just for a second, because because I, I want to make sure that you understand a really tricky... Um, I don't know that it's that tricky but it's it's widely interpreted, okay? So what is Jesus saying there when he says, "You're Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Well, first of all, what you need to know is there's a little bit of a word play there that we don't get in English, okay? So in other words, when when Jesus meets Simon, okay? Remember what he does? He changes his name. Okay? In Aramaic, he changes it to Cephas, which means stone, all right? Now, if you translate that into Greek, okay, which is what the New Testament is written in, then it's Petros, okay, so little stone. So to read this literally in Greek, it would say, I tell you are Petros, okay, little stone, and on this Petra, big rock, I will build my church, okay? So I think you need to know that that's going on in there, okay? Uh, so that's going on. there. So what exactly is Jesus talking about? What is he gonna build his church upon? Well, let me, let me tell you just in, in way of contrast, the Roman Catholic Church, for many, many, hundreds of years, has taken this passage and they have built their doctrine on papal infallibility from this 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 passage okay so what what roman catholic folks and, and we love them i'm not i'm not trying i just want to, i want you to know the different interpretation to this okay so the roman catholic folks have said hey okay what we get from this is that jesus was establishing a pope a a a leader of all the church uh, let me just read this is the first time this has ever happened at lincoln avenue but i'm going to read from the roman uh, catechism okay I just I don't want to I don't want to put words in their mouth. So this is right out of the Roman uh, Roman Catholic Catechism. Okay, the Roman Pontiff, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ and as Pastor of the entire Church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole Church. A power which he can always exercise unhindered. Okay. So, so that's, that's the conclusion they've come from from that verse. Now, let me tell you, I come to a very different conclusion, okay? Uh, so, But I want to be fair, so that, that's their conclusion. Okay, okay. I do not think that, that, that Jesus is saying, Peter, you're now the boss of the church, and when you die, there'll be a guy that you know, that has your power, and and, he'll ha- and then he'll do his thing, and then he'll die. I, and, and, and Peter, at times, what the Roman Catholics believe is that what the Pope says is on the authority of, of Scripture. It's when he speaks ex cathedra. I just do not believe that the Bible is teaching that from this passage, particularly because 10 minutes later, Peter sticks his foot in his mouth hugely, you know, and Jesus has got to say, dude, you're, you're being used by Satan right now, Okay. So I, I just don't I don't I don't see that from this passage. Now what do I see? What I see is that the the Bible as a whole says this very clearly: Jesus is the rock upon which the, the church is built, okay? That's what I want to tell you this morning. Now, where would I get that idea? Actually, I get it from Peter, okay? So, uh, Peter wrote a book himself. It's in your Bible. It's called 1 Peter, okay? He wrote several, First and Second Peter, okay? But let, let, me, let me read to you what Peter says about the church in his own book, okay? So this would be the time where he could point to himself and say, you know, hey, I'm the rock. I'm the, I'm the one that the church is built upon. Okay, but he doesn't say that. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse um, 4. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So as he described Jesus as a living stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, and then he quotes the Old Testament, behold I am laying in Zion a stone. That's Jesus again, a cornerstone Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? That's Jesus, right? Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. He is the living stone, He is the cornerstone. All right? Keep reading verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, how many times in that passage did Peter refer to Jesus as a rock or a stone? I haven't counted actually but it's about five or six isn't it and so it seems clear to me from that passage from other passages that peter is very clear that jesus is the rock upon which the church is built in fact in paul if we go to paul in ephesians 220 he says that god has built uh, the church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets jesus christ being the chief cornerstone in acts 242 it says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles teaching all right, so the apostles kind of were the foundation of the gospel going out. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No man can build upon any foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what I believe going on, is going on here is, let's just look at the context, okay? So it's always helpful when you're reading scripture, trying to understand it. Look at what's happening. So what just happened, okay? Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter answers the question, Jesus says, by the power of God. And he answers the question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus says, yes, Peter, and on this big rock, I'm going to build my church. I think the big rock is Jesus himself and what Peter just said about Jesus, okay? You know, you know why I believe that? Because I think that's what the scriptures say. And let me tell you, let me ask your experience here today. Those of you who are born again, how did you get into the kingdom? How did, how did you get into the church? You got into the church because God moved in your heart, and at some point you turned away from your sins and you said, Jesus is the one, right? He, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. I am putting my faith in him. I am putting my my, my hopes and dreams in Christ. It was that profession of faith that brought you into the kingdom, right? That is how the church is built. It's not built in any other way. The church is built when God reveals in the hearts of men who Jesus is, and they put their trust in him, and that's how the church is built, all right? So Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this is the first time. There's a couple firsts in this passage. This is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay. Now, the word church is the word, the Greek word, ekklesia. Now, what does that word mean? It means gathering. Hot dog, look what you guys did today. You gathered. Good job, right? Like you're living that out, right? The church is the called out ones who gather together, right? So at the heart of the church is these, these believers, these ones who have confessed you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who gather together, and they gather together, they covenant together to worship, uh, to, to do the mission of the gospel together, to love and care for one another, uh, to commit to each other and to the Lord, all right? Now, the church has both a universal expression and a local expression, right? So, so in other words, there are people that are worshiping today uh, in India right now. There are people that are worshiping in Indonesia, in China, in uh, Alaska, all over the world, Right. right? Okay, those are all part of what we would call the universal church. Uh, Let me show you a cool verse that includes both the universal church and the local church, okay? So in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See, there's there's both the local church and the universal church, okay? First of all, the local church. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. What is he saying? It's those who have been born again, those who have trusted Christ, those who have said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now they're in Corinth, right? They're in a particular place, and they've gathered together for worship. They've gathered together to live out the mission of God. They've gathered together to encourage one another and love one another in Jesus' name. But then he goes on and he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, in every place, in in, in India, in, in Thailand, in uh, in Sri Lanka, in Japan, in China, in all over the world. My daughter's in Taiwan right now, and she is worshiping Jesus. She is part of the universal church. She's not here with us today. She's with the church in China, right? So so all over the world, you have this universal church, and then you have a local expression of the church wherever you happen to be. You should gather together with other believers. So Verses like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 make sense. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Why would we not neglect to meet together? Because we're the church, right? And the church gathers together and they stir one another up to love and good deeds. Uh, Encouraging one another more, all the more as you see the day approaching. So you have Jesus saying, I will build my church, okay? I, I will call out people. I will reveal to them my son, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And on that foundation of Jesus Christ and that profession of him, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, a very important phrase or a very important word in that phrase is the word my, okay? Jesus said, I will build whose church? My. My, my church, okay? The church belongs to Jesus, all right? It is his church. It's not Peter's church. It's not Jason's church. Please, people people say that to me, and I, I kind of cringe. They'll be like, "Well, what about what? How, how do people do things at your church?" It's not my church. I, I know what they're saying. They're saying where you gather, but we have to be really clear: the church only belongs to Jesus. It is His. He's the one that brings people into it. Right. Now, you can have false believers, you can have people that aren't Christians that meet together, but, but but if you're a true believer, then you got into the church through the power of God, right? And so it is His church. I'll tell you, one of the things that is cool and trendy right now, I try to be cool and trendy, it just always, it's always escapes me. I can't quite get there, Okay. But what's cool and trendy today in a lot of circles is to be in on Jesus and out on the church. Okay? The last 10 years, I've heard that a lot. You know, I love Jesus, I think he's the Christ, he's the Son of the Living God, but I just don't believe. I've heard people, I don't believe in the church. So, like, oh, you don't believe in what Jesus just said here? I, I'm not I'm not understanding that. But that's a trendy thing to be is I'm out on the church. Well, let me let me just caution you a couple things. It is Jesus' church you're talking about. It's his, okay? i know it's easy to be critical it's easy to praise jesus and be critical of the church you know why that's so easy because this the church universal and local it's filled it's going to shock you please do not fall out of your seats it's filled with sinners okay it is it's filled with sinners now they're redeemed Okay? If, they're, if they're truly in the church, they're redeemed sinners. They're bought by the blood of Jesus. They're indwelt with the Spirit of God. They are in the process of being sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like themselves. That is true, okay? But they're still sinners. And so there's there's lots to point out. There's lots to criticize. But here, here's what I've found. I've I found this about marriage. Have, have, you, have, you, have you seen this about marriage? And if you're married here today, unless you got married last night, you are aware your spouse is a sinner. You married a sinner, okay? Now, if you got married last night, I want to leave room to you're still in a delusion, okay? (laughs) Give it a little time, through lunch at least, okay? And, And you'll probably come to the reality that you married a broken person, okay? Now, I think most of us in here would say, yes, I know that is true. But you still don't like for someone to criticize your spouse, do you? Jesus says the church is my bride. It's my bride. He's got no delusions about, about sin and brokenness. But he says the church is my bride. And so I, I would just caution you. I would caution you about being too hard on the church. You don't have to convince me that things are broken. I, in fact, I would say, I would, I'm just going to say this. I think I probably know the brokenness of the church more than all of you. Yeah. You got, you got stuff to tell. I I got a lot more and I ain't telling nothing, okay? Cuz it's Jesus church. It's his. My Thursday morning group's been going through the book of James and uh it's just just when I thought about the church being Jesus church, I thought about the last 2 weeks in there. I've uh I've had a lot of things to be cranky about in the last couple of weeks and so Thursday morning it's been it's, it, he, Jesus has got me each each last 2 Thursdays. So in chapter 4 of James, he says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Ooh, be careful there. Be careful. Okay? So that got me. That kind of straightened me out for about a week. And this, just as I was getting cranky again, here come Thursday again, and we're in James 5, the next chapter, verse uh, 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Yeah, you ever, you ever remember this with your kids? Like you'd kind of walk in, they didn't know you were coming, and the older kid would just be ripping the younger one, you know, giving them the what for and, you know, everything, and then you're standing at the door watching, that younger one sees your eyes and kind of brightens up a little bit, you know, and then the older one turns around and is like, oops, you know. That's the picture there. The judge is at the door, okay. So you ought to be a little cautious about how you speak. Of Jesus' bride. Because it is his church. And you know what he's doing in his church? He He is, he is invincibly conquering with his church. Alright. Jesus says the church. He, he, he describes the invincibility of the church. He says I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love that. I love that. He says this is what I'm doing. I'm building it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In order to really grab onto the goodness of that, you know, you got to not only believe that there's this opposition against this church. There's this, there's this demonic, uh, organized attack against the church. And Jesus says, look, no matter what, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But I think when you look at the image of gates and hell, what do gates do? You know, they're the entrance, the exit. You know, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I think what he's really saying there is he's saying, my people will have victory no matter what. Let me tell you something you may not be aware of keenly this morning. Your biggest problem is probably not what you think your biggest problem is, okay? Okay. You might have came in here today and thought, my biggest big, big problem is finances, you know? I mean, it's Christmas time. that it, it's a kicker for finances, isn't it? You know, you may have came in here and think, my greatest challenge is my poor health or my disability. Or my greatest obstacle is, is a bad marriage or a rebellious child or an aging parent. You may have thought your greatest problem is something. But let me tell you what your greatest problem is. Your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest enemy is sin, death, and the grave. And here's why. Because they will take everything from you. No matter what you have, no matter what you dream of, no matter what you cherish, sin, death, and the grave will take it from you. They will take your life, your opportunities, your legacy, your pleasures, your work, your dreams, your hope, Sin, death, and the grave will kick the front door into your life, and they will take it all. And here's one thing you can count on. They will win. It doesn't matter what you do. They will win. It doesn't matter how you plan. It doesn't matter how you prepare. It doesn't matter the good works you do. It doesn't matter if you set up a foundation. It doesn't matter if you set up a memorial. It doesn't matter if you never drink Diet Coke, which everybody keeps telling me how bad it is. It doesn't matter if you do yoga. It doesn't matter if you eat clean. I'm being honest, I have no idea what that means. I hear it said all the time, eat clean, eat clean. The only thing I can think is like sometimes you drop your food on the floor and then give it only a couple seconds for you I guess that's what they're talking about. I'm not sure, okay? But here's what I know. If you eat clean, you do yoga, you have one of them colonoscopies. I don't want any piece of that either. You have one of them every year. Here's what's going to happen. Death is still coming for you. And it will take everything. And you will not be able to stop it. And sin will drag your guilty soul to the depths of hell. And the grave will be your prison. And you cannot stop it. But Jesus can. That's what he's saying. He's saying I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against them. He will do it. Sin, death, and the grave. Hell will have no victory over God's people. Man, I love that. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 says this about our king. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. That's Christmas. Jesus put on human flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus will bring victory to his church, to his people, to those gathered ones, both local and universal. Now, what else is he doing? Well, he's going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will have ultimate victory. And then he says this. He said that he has given the church a mission, and he has given the church the keys to that mission. Okay, so keep reading here. Verse, uh, what is it, uh, 19, I think, maybe. Um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples that no one uh, to tell no one, yet, yet is implied there, you'll see that later, that he was the Christ, okay? Now, what what is this keys the kingdom, binding in heaven, binding on earth, loosing in heaven, loosing on earth? Well, let me tell you, the, again, there are denominations that say that this was something given to Peter himself and that Peter has this power uh, in his position. I do not believe that. Again, why do I not believe that? I just don't see it in the scriptures. What I see is you go two chapters ahead, so go to chapter 18, just just a few verses ahead. In chapter 18, you have this, this uh, uh, paragraph about what happens when your brother sins against you. Like what happens when someone sins against you and you're trying to reconcile and you go bring brothers and you pray and you try to work this thing out and then you bring it, bring it to the church and the church tries to work it out and the person continues to be obstinate. Okay, here's, here's what Matthew eighteen eighteen says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the same thing. Right? It says the same thing that Jesus just told Peter. And so so Jesus, Jesus is applying this to the church just a few chapters later on. So here's, here's what I believe he's doing is he is giving the church the authority of the gospel. He's giving the church the authority of his word. Again, put this in context. What just happened? He said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ son of the living God. Jesus is like, yes, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you loose will be loose. Whatever you bind will be bound, all right? It's that confession. In other words, the church has the word of God and the church can speak authoritatively to the world. Okay, now our world really, that really bothers 2018 America, okay? Because here's what 2018 America says. It says you you have no business saying anything about anybody else's life, okay? You have no business saying that anything is truth. You can only have truth for yourself. Like, my shoes are brown, but I'm not telling you they're brown. If you want to think they're purple polka dots, then, you know, that's your truth. This is my truth. Okay, the Bible says no. The Bible says I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. I'm giving you the gospel. And so if someone says, I reject Jesus, I reject him as the Christ, I reject him as the son of God, he may be a good person, but he's not the Christ, he's not God, I reject the gospel, then the church has the authority to say, your sins are not forgiven. You will bear the wrath of God forever in eternity. And on the other side, if I tell you, if I say, church, I, I, I have repented of my sins and I've put my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Christ. He is my Lord. He is my King. He is all to me. It is only through his death, burial, and resurrection that, that I put my trust in eternal life. Then you have the right to say back to me, brother, your sins are forgiven. Brother, you, you, you're joined to Jesus. Eternity is yours. We have that authority. Jesus says, that is your mission, church. And now we come to the question of our willingness to submit to this mission, okay? So, things have been going good. I, I, I got to think that Peter is doing a little of this, you know? Don't you think? Like, like he's the guy that puts his foot in his mouth there once in a while, but, you know, he pops out there under the direction of the Lord, of God. You're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, you know. On this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Man, he's got to be feeling good about himself, right? And then verse 21, Jesus begins to lay out this mission, right? So he's just told them, I am the Christ. Man, they're super excited until he says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to the Jerusalem. He must, you see must there? He must, he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day raise again. Peter says, no. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. Now, why why would Peter say that's not going to happen? Well, first of all, this was not Peter's idea of what the Messiah would do, right? Right? Why, why would Peter say absolutely not, Jesus? First of all, it's just a bad idea to rebuke Jesus, okay? But, you know, it's Peter, right? And, and so he says no, never. Why would he say no, never? Let me, let me give you five of maybe a thousand reasons, okay? Number one, Peter loves Jesus, right? He loves him. Like, I believe that. I, I believe, and I think it's scriptural, scripturally attested that Peter loves Jesus. And he does not want him to go to the cross. He does not want to lose him. Number two, Peter's idea of a Messiah, Peter's idea of all that the Old Testament has promised was of a ruling, powerful, political, military leader who would destroy all of Israel's enemies and establish God's people as the center of culture and civilization and they would reign, right? And now Jesus says, I'm gonna go be tortured and killed. Peter's like, no. Number three, if Jesus is murdered, what does that mean for the disciples? I mean, Peter's gotta be going through his head, man, he's put... He's put all of his stock in this. He's put all. He's put his life. He's left everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus says, "I'm. I'm going to go. I'm going to go die." Fourth, and there's so much more to do. I mean, can't you see Peter being super excited about everything that's been going on? The dead are being raised. People are walking on water. Twenty thousand people are fed with a lunchable. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. He's got to be like, Jesus, no, you can't leave. Number five, Peter knew Jesus was not an ordinary man. He just said it. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He he lived with Jesus. He knew Jesus was perfect. He knew Jesus wasn't selfish like other men. Jesus wasn't prideful like other men. Jesus wasn't angry like other men. Jesus wasn't bitter like other men. If anybody deserved not to die, it was Jesus. Jesus. We could probably come up with a thousand more reasons, right? But here's the thing. Peter had this disease that you and I have quite a bit. It's called short-sightedness, right? We we only see right here, right? We're thinking about the next moment. We're thinking about what does this mean for me right now, okay? Peter is not seeing the full picture that if Jesus does not go to the cross, then we all go to hell. He is the Messiah, which means... He's got to give his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins and be rose from the dead to be our king. But Peter did not have the big picture in mind. Peter was looking at immediate comfort, immediate success, immediate popularity. Guys, this this may be the most applicable thing in this sermon, but have you noticed how we tend to think that painful hard things are not God's will you you, you guys do that you like get to a fork in the road and you're like I think God's leading me this way but oh man that thing's hard maybe it's not right maybe there may all this other way looks good That's, that's, that's right where Peter is he's like you're the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus is like okay let's go die and Peter's like whoa no 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 hey Folks, if we learn anything from this passage right here, here's what we learn. There are times when God's way is the hard way. It is the painful way. And not only is Peter missing the big picture here, guys, but Peter is being used by Satan to tempt Jesus to disobey. Do you remember in Matthew 4 we looked at Jesus' temptations? Have you ever noticed that, I mean, you, there's a lot we can say about those, but one of these things you can say about them is one of the common threads between all three is that all three tempt Jesus to take the easy way around God's plan, right? So God's plan is for Jesus to trust him for his provision, but he's really hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And you remember what Satan does? He says, hey, those rocks, just turn them into Panera Bread. You know, you can have it right now. Use your power for your own purposes. Satan knew Jesus was to be the Messiah. Satan takes him to the top of the temple. He says, you want to be the Messiah? Hey, Don't go to that cross business. Jump off. Angels will catch you. Everybody will see. They'll put a crown on your head today. He knows Jesus wants the world. Satan's like, hey, you don't don't need to be butchered by those wicked men. You don't need to bear their filth and iniquity. I'll give you the world. Just worship me. We'll have this deal done today. The easy way. And now you got Jesus telling the only people on earth who know who he is, guys, it's time to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And they're saying, no, 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 no. That's the wrong plan. Be careful that you don't do this to other people. I'm telling you guys, this what Peter does here right at the end, it is super tempting for us to be that satanic voice to other people that we love, particularly people that we love, actually, particularly your family. I've seen this played out in a lot of different scenarios, oftentimes in relationships. I've oftentimes seen a husband or a wife who knows, all right, Jesus called me to love this person in in this marriage, and it is hard. It's hard. And this is a painful season. And oftentimes there's someone who loves them very much, and you know what they're telling them? They don't want them to hurt anymore. They, they They don't want them to go through this struggle. They're telling them, hey, Go a different way. Nobody ever says, hey, disobey God, do they? But when someone's trying to obey God in a really hard thing, don't be the one that tells them not to. This could be played out in all kinds of other things. I've, I've, I've seen families who had a son or daughter called to the mission field, going to take those grandbabies to some third world country. I've seen good, well-meaning parents say, No. You need to do something different. You know why it's so important that we get this whole Jesus going to the cross thing? Well, it's because I wish we had more time. But the next verse, you know what it says? It says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, not only does Jesus say, Peter, I'm going to the cross. But he says, Peter, if you're going to follow me, <laughs> then you've got to deny yourself. And you've got to take up your cross. And you've got to follow me. Folks, sometimes the hard way is Jesus' way. I think it's great that today God gave us a passage on the church because we're going to finish our service by uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a very church thing to do uh it is it is something that the gathering of the saints do together here's here's the way this works at lincoln avenue if our guys would go ahead and come up and uh, begin to prepare the table for us this this is uh this is this is way we do this at lincoln if you're a part of the universal church can we use that term if you're a part of the universal church then you are welcome to partake of communion with us today Okay? So what that means, if you're a born-again believer, if you've turned away from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your King, as your Lord, and as your Savior, then we invite you to partake in this supper with us today. Now, if you're still in process, okay? if you, Listen, I was there. I was there for many years. If you're still trying to figure out, do I really believe Jesus is the Christ? Do I really believe that he, He's the King? Do I really believe that about Him? If, if you're still in process, if you're, if you're still seeking, Here's here's what we want you today. We want you today to just spend some time grappling with who do I believe Jesus is? What do I say about Jesus?